0: But we start today, again, talking about something that is being debated at Vancouver City Council, and it takes a look at kind of modernizing liquor laws. Joining us to talk more about what this might look like if approved is Jeff Guinard, Executive Director of ABLE BC, that Species Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. This is something, uh, looking at the council report uh, that is being debated today, it's a few establishments that are looking at something called the dual license. Uh, can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. what that would look like?
1: Yeah, so liquor licensing is always you know, endlessly complicated, but generally if you are a restaurant who happens to serve alcohol, you get something called a food primary license, and there's certain rules around that. Whereas places like bars and nightclubs uh, that focus on liquor service first get something called a liquor primary license. And you typically only have one. Uh, you, and that's just kind of how you run your business. Starting in 2017, the provincial government made some changes. It so said you can actually have both. You can just operate as a, a restaurant up until 10 o'clock at night, say, and then you would convert and allow some of the, the things you'd see more in, like bars, like things like entertainment or dancing or things like that. Not a lot of places have really picked up on it. And um, the municipality had a role to play in Vancouver. They really needed to change the rules. So trying to respond to the needs of the hospitality industry as we're clambering out of the financial hole. Uh, this council suffered to make some changes. And uh, I think it's actually we're seeing now the first three applications come through and we're, we're excited to see how it goes.
0: Are there still rules? So looking at, at the report, there's a kind of a map that shows areas from the establishment to other similar mm-hmm. establishments in the neighborhood as well. Are there still regulations, though, even if this did go ahead, as far as how many could be located in a certain area?
1: Yeah, so Vancouver, and we work across the province, and we've seen all kinds of municipalities. And in Vancouver, they do sort of over-regulate in some cases. And there's a bunch of rules around the capacity you can have compared to your neighbors. And that, that's, that's unique to Vancouver, and we're, we're hoping we'll see some of those rules relaxed as well. Um, at the end of the day, though, what, what's happening is by changing you know, in, in, in this dual-license system, it allows a you – know, you can imagine um, – you know, a small cafe that maybe serves sandwiches and a couple of glasses of beer during the course of the day. If they have clients coming in and customers who want to come in later at night and have more of an entertainment experience, they can convert to that. Now, Granville Street also has some unique challenges, right? And that's one of the reasons the city is engaging in an 18-month Granville revitalization project, which we're excited about. But you can look at all the other nightclubs on the street, and they've all joined uh, a bar watch program. It's basically to ensure that we, we keep organized crime or any, any admissible patrons out of our establishments. We're really hoping that any place that converts in the Granville Street area to become a kind of a pub or a bar later on, uh, that they also join our program. Uh, and that's simply because we all need to work together to make sure we're focusing on safety and responsibility in that area.
0: What would be the pushback to this? Or, or have you received any pushback or, or any reasons from maybe other businesses or people in the area that, that don't like the idea?
1: Yeah, well, the first thing is, it's overall it is a positive thing. You're trying to find a way to help hospitality businesses, 40% of which are still not making money after the pandemic and have taken on massive loads of debt. You're trying to help them recover, so that's a really positive thing. Uh, the concerns we have are always around, you know, the safety uh, and making sure that places that are not used to running, sort of a, a liquor primary or a, a pub or bar, um, get the adequate training and support that they need to do it. So. The example of that is that inadmissible patron program like Bar Watch, which you know it's created about 15 years ago to get organized crime out of downtown Vancouver. And what happens is if you're kicked out of a Bar Watch bar for your behavior or for criminal affiliation or anything like that, you can't get into any other ones. So any establishment that's now switching to have that dual license, you want them part of that program so they don't leave our establishments and go to somebody else's and start to cause problems there, right? So it's just the way that the industry wants to work together. Uh, I don't think citizens should have any particular concerns about it, um, you know, things like noise or the kind of customers you're attracting, you're already going to be doing these things in areas that make sense to do them, right? You can, you can imagine that it's not going to be some small little coffee shop converting to have a, you know, a dance floor. Uh, I mean, they just wouldn't have the customers to do something like that. And, um, you know, this has been allowed since 2017, provincially, but we've actually seen very little pickup of it. So it's, I think the city council here is just trying to find a way to help support the hospitality industry as they get out of the pandemic.
0: And do you think would there be any issues then? And looking at the some of the applications again, you might be a restaurant or cafe from say 10 to 3, and then mm-hmm. then become more of a pub or, or more of a bar, um, and and things that make a lot of sense. So you wouldn't have people on the patio after 11 yeah. p.m. The noise yeah. you would make sure that the noise wasn't wasn't polluting or too loud for for neighbors. Absolutely. Assigning the good name agreement. Do you think though yeah. is it possible there would be bars, people that are or, or businesses that are already doing that to feel that it's not really a level playing field because now there are these other restaurants can, that can convert into being bars?
1: Yeah, and the way that we handle that, because that, that is a valid concern from a lot of businesses, because the, the, the process to get you know a restaurant liquor license is different than to get a bar or a public liquor license. So by switching to that dual license though, you now have to go through that same process with the province. They make sure you're, you're deemed what they call fit and proper. So you've got a you know background check to make sure you're a good operator. Uh, and as, you know, the community has an opportunity to engage. You put up a big sign in front of your business, and then the, the community knows what's happening, and they have an opportunity to watch their concerns, and other businesses do as well. Uh, we find, though, that typically when you cluster businesses like this together, it actually leads to some vibrancy in the city. There's some other issues that we need to sort out, definitely in the Grandville Entertainment District, and the city started that process. You know we can also look at harmonizing closing hours around the city. It's, it's strange that on literally on Granville Street, on one block, you know you have to close at one am, the next block it's two am, the next block's three am. All that is based on old, outdated rules that don't really make sense in this contemporary framework. But when it comes to businesses' concerns about it, I think it's a lot to do with things I was mentioning with bar watch and making sure they've got an inadmissible patron program if they're going to try and act like something like in my club. And that the community has a chance to weigh in through that public consultation process, which is part of converting to a liquor primary. So, I think that we're we're generally in good hands, um, and we'll see how this goes after the first three.
0: Uh, so, the first three, and like you said, this is a change. The law has been changed for quite some time, and it's now we're we're seeing some pickup of that. Do you think if this mm-hmm. is approved, we might see other businesses doing the same thing?
1: I think we'll be curious about that, right? Because it has been allowed since 2017 provincially. And in other communities, we haven't really seen a whole lot of take up on it. I think it was, you know, someone thought it was a good idea at the time, and they, they offered this opportunity. And then a lot of businesses, you know, you, you don't want to try and cram two or three different business models into your business, right? You want to focus on what you're doing so you can do that well. So we're curious if these businesses are going to find some success in that. I imagine it's the kind of thing we'll see works in some particular areas, particularly as the city works to amend some of its rules around capacity restrictions or, harmonizing closing hours or you know, making sure that you've got adequate number of seats in those areas to, to serve your customers. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, and um, I imagine that you know this council, who's uh, committed very strongly to supporting our industry and trying to increase the vibrancy in the city, will be looking for feedback on this in the coming months too.
0: Any concerns about staffing levels? And that I know a lot of restaurants and a lot of uh, in the service industry are, are struggling to have those numbers. Yeah. And I would think with this, you might need yeah. more.
1: Oh, you're, you're tapping into the single largest challenge we're facing right now. So I know everybody talks about labor shortage a lot, but for us, we are short about 30,000 workers in our industry that normally employs about 200,000 British Columbians. So what that means is we are kind of have these handcuffs on where we can only achieve about 80% of our capacity. Sometimes you'll go into a restaurant or a pub and, you know, you'll ask the hostess for a seat and she'll say, we can't seat you right now. And you're looking at empty seats in the restaurant or the pub. But the reason they're not doing it is because you don't have enough kitchen staff or staff to serve you. So that's our biggest challenge. Uh, It's something we spend a lot of time talking to our provincial and federal government partners about. Uh, And it's it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck approach throughout the whole industry to tackle it. All
0: right. We'll wait and see what happens at council and what else we'll be looking for as far as changes in that and other neighbourhoods. Jeff, as always, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Have a great day. You
0: too. It is Wednesday. That means it is time to check in with Claire Newell with Travel Best Bets, as we do every Wednesday at
2: this time. Claire, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks, Jill. You know what? Happy International Women's Day, first off, but second... You just got back from Fiji. I did. I can't wait to hear
0: about it. How (laughs) was it? (laughs) I did. We we won't spend the whole segment, but I did want to mention this because I had such an amazing time, and I will say it out. I am not being paid to say any of this, but I flew on Fiji Airlines after actually hearing the ads on this station that they were starting up nonstop flights from Vancouver to Nandi Airport, and it was amazing. It's about a 12-hour flight going there, 11 hours and a bit coming back, but I was blown away by the beauty of the country. It's so clean. The people are the nicest people I've ever met. And Yay! swimming there, I, I think I spent most of the time swimming in the ocean, and it felt like I was swimming in a giant
2: aquarium.
0: It was coral reefs and tropical fish, and it was absolutely amazing.
2: Yeah, I mean, the only way to go is on a non-stop if you can do it, and it's great that they brought that back, that Fiji Airways flight. The other thing is, like you said, most people don't realize Fiji is actually a coral atoll, so you're actually you're you're literally seeing an aquarium like you say if you are into snorkeling it's spectacular and i got over my fear
0: of the ocean because i can be a little (laughs) apprehensive but i was just constantly immersed with tropical fish and then i got kind of brave at one point i saw a turtle i saw a reef shark and i was okay with it and it's just it was just i would highly recommend it for anybody that wants a a very laid back turn your phone off just enjoy the beauty of a place It uh, checked all of those boxes Thank you. the
2: cat Oh, I'm so glad to hear. You know, it's so popular for people from Australia, less so from, from here, just because there hasn't been that nonstop. But when it's there, you can take advantage of it. It's amazing. I'm so glad to hear you had a good time. Yes,
0: and I, and you gave me a ton of recommendations on where to go, and I got to a couple of them, but they were just absolutely beautiful, beautiful spots. And I even checked Great. out Castaway Island. And, and Oh, you did? Oh, <laughs> good. Hung, yeah. hung out where Tom Hanks spent some time there. <laughs> so, yes, all around a fantastic vacation um let's uh, talk about spring break because maybe some people are going there or having other spring spring break vacations and getting back into it
2: yeah yeah that you know it's a really busy tra- travel time so i just wanted to just quickly review a couple of things i'll go through it quickly because i know we're short of time of course on segments like this but the first thing is go to travel.gc.ca just to make sure you know all of the entry and exit requirements and make sure that you have the documentation that's necessary that could be visas. If you're going to the U.S., you still require, you know, your your, your um, vaccination certificate if you're flying. Um, make sure that you have all the right documentation and that they are current, no expired uh, documents. Lots of people are traveling with kids and maybe only one parent or kids are going, you know, on a band trip or a sports trip. So make sure that you go to that same website, travelgc.ca, to get consent letters. Um, you just can pull, download them and fill them out. It's really easy. And you might not be asked for them but it's really important to have them if you are. So just make sure you do that. You can also register your trip on there, um, putting in your passport details, the dates you're going, passport information, and and a contact number worth doing. Travel insurance, just make sure you've got that. Um, And activities, so you mentioned that you did some um, snorkeling while you're away. So just double check certain activities and may not be covered by insurance policies. So um, check the activities. Make sure that you can, you know, ride bikes if you're planning to do that, scuba dive if you plan on doing that. Jump out of planes if you plan on doing that. Um, and notify any tr- insurance of any medical changes um because that can affect the policy being valid or not. And if you think you've got credit card coverage, just double check that as well because 90% of credit cards don't have the insurance. So you want to make sure you you actually do pack light. I don't know if you did this, Jill, but oh, yes. um carry-on only. If you could do it, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we had winter break, just seven or eight weeks ago, and it was rough. So if you can do carry-on only, do that. Use technology. So check in online. Make sure that you um, book your seats if you want specific seats and do that ahead of time. Download the airline's app. Take your chargers and your battery packs They're, um, so that you've got entertainment in flight and even at the airport because there's not a lot of places to plug in. I'm a big fan of uh, packing snacks as well as a refillable water bottle because anytime that I'm in an airport or at an attraction or somewhere touristy, Water can be like five or six bucks, and snacks can be, you know, five bucks for a granola bar. So I take some from home. I just uh, the last thing I'll say is pack your patience and build an extra time um, because it is a busy time when you're heading to the airport. Just just get there a little little earlier than you know. I, I always suggest, which is two hours for a transborder to the U.S. flight or three hours for an international flight.
0: All right. Oh, yeah. And you're right. Pack a little patience and uh, things will go very smooth or at least hopefully they will go as smooth as possible. Uh, let's talk as well, uh, Swoop. People will be familiar with Swoop. They are yeah. expanding things.
2: Yeah, they are expanding. So this is a subsidiary of WestJet and um, it's their l- ultra low cost carrier. They are expanding for some domestic routes and some added flight frequencies to some hotspots. Some to note uh, that are are uh, coming for, for BC residents, new service between Abbotsford and and London, Ontario. They also aren't ready for winter to end because they've announced that they're going to be flying to their most popular sun destinations until the end of June. So some additional flights for Abbotsford to both Puerto Vallarta, Mexico and Los Cabos, Mexico. And, um, you know, what they're saying is that the West Coast connectivity is really going to increase 67% uh, in flights operating from Abbotsford Airports. So if you don't mind getting to that airport, it's a little smaller. It's pretty uh, cheap to to park. It's really easy to get navigate, like not huge terminals. So um, it's just something to consider moving forward. Um, WestJet also, uh, their parent company, is expanding their schedule. They're going to be, they've announced that they're going to be adding more seats and additional flights, which is always good news. And it's not just domestic, it's transborder, it's international. Um, so nearly 600 daily departures during their peak travel summer dates, which is great news. Just to give you an idea of the frequency that they're adding, these are just some domestic, but Vancouver to Saskatoon, are, it's going to be seven, uh, seven times a week. La- uh, last year, it was only four times a week. Mm -hmm. Vancouver to Ottawa will be 11 times a week. And last year it was only five times a week. So that's more than double. So it's great news.
0: All right. Uh, Lots of expansion there as well. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the uh, European travel information system and what's happening with this.
2: So I know a lot of people are kind of thinking in their planning, we've been hearing so much about this that it was imminently coming. And as of May, we're going to have to be doing this if we're traveling to Europe or the Shenzhen countries. It's now been delayed for the fourth time, Jill. Um, So it was at last report to be launched in May of this year, but they have just delayed it until sometime in 2024. And we don't know what that date will be. But of course, as soon as it comes out, I will let you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, an update on that. Uh, You also have a new river cruise for
2: people that uh, maybe have that on their list. So river cruising has really you know, taken off over the past, say, 15 years. And um, there's all sorts of rivers that, that people are, are going on holidays. Most of them are down the Danube River. That's kind of where it started, that Amsterdam to Budapest. But then there's the Rhine, the Douro in Portugal, the Moselle, um, the Nile, lots of them in Egypt. But this has just been announced and it's um, AMA Waterways is going to be the first major river cruise line to explore Colombia's Magdalena River. It's going to start next year, they're going to have two ships that, uh, that do that. Um, Colombia, you know, a lot of people get scared when they think of that, you know, Bogota, Medellin. Uh, um, there's just, it, there's so many UNESCO World Heritage Sites in Colombia. I think this is going to be an, an outstanding itinerary and a way to see that part of the world. So if that's on your bucket list, this might be something to consider.
0: All right. I know it is for a lot of people kind of doing that smaller, smaller cruise. Uh, We started off talking about airports and like you said, packing your patients. But here are the
2: busiest or fastest growing airports. Yeah. So um, there was an aviation data company called Sirium. We use them for a couple of different things for airlines and airports, but... Um, Since the pandemic, we've seen certain airports, uh, one of which is super popular for BC residents, and that's Cancun, and they took the top spot. They've actually grown 37%. Since the pandemic, which is really nice because it was always kind of one of those airports you get to and then you wait <laughs> and you wait. So, and even when you got um, uh, got to there to the destination and then you were flying home, it was always a bit of a wait and slow. So, this will definitely improve the experience going in and out of Cancun, Miami, and Cairo, tied for second with a 23 percent increase, and then Istanbul, Bogota. And Las Vegas also saw growth. So in the 20% range. So it was interesting because European airports noticeably absent among the fastest growing and usually one of them or two of them is in that top, you know, five or top 10 list.
0: Yeah, for sure. All right. So those are the busy and the growing airports. Um, Let's talk a little bit before we get to the deals as well. I know this is something and people will be likely looking at this for spring break travel, uh, the busiest airports, as well as family seating and those policies.
2: Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, you and I chatted about the fact that United Airlines kind of came to the table first not to charge families for seat selection so that the families can all stay together in the US they've had tons of pressure biden has put pressure on these airlines to to change the policies because what's been happening is families are, are they're kind of uh, i guess they're like they're charged more to even sit with kids that are 12 and under or 15 and under and I know I can, I can hear the families out there saying, I wouldn't mind if I didn't have to sit with my families <laughs> <laughs> when they're kids. Um, but American Airlines is the latest to update their family seating policies. So they're going to guarantee children 14 and under will be seated adjacent to their accompanying adult at no additional cost. So that's great news. Um, and it follows United Airlines who are doing the same. And another smaller uh, list of airlines is doing them as well. But this, is, this will, I think, be across the board for all of the major airlines within weeks, if not months.
0: All right. And one other one, uh, a smaller airline going to Mexico and a more well-known airline, Singapore, uh, no longer coming to Vancouver or, or will not be in uh, later on this year.
2: Yeah, let's start with Singapore Airlines. Um, this is really disappointing because they sus- they're going to be suspending their nonstop service in October, they, you know, it just obviously was not doing that well. So they have announced that they're going to sus- be suspending it um, from YVR. It's just kind of a move for the carriers overall network strategy, best matching capacity with demand. So obviously there wasn't enough demand. So that was kind of disappointing. Um, but there are, will be nonstop service until October if that's on your bucket list. So you might want to do that. I know I, anytime I can get a nonstop flight somewhere, it kind of supersedes any of the other destinations that I look at. Um, and Canada Jetlines, which is the kind of the newest carrier to the game here in Canada, they have completed their first international route, which is um, Toronto to Cancun. It's twice a week, but they're definitely going to increase the capacity. And I would suspect that we're going to see more Mexican destinations from Canada Jetlines moving forward. All right, let's get to the deals. Okay. Mexico, let's talk about that first. Still so much demand. You know, it's the winter weather that we've had, Jill, I think. You missed some of I it. Did. I know, yes. Lucky girl. <laughs> um, so um, not a lot of space left for March because of spring break, but April the 4th through until the 16th, there are some deals available to Puerto Vallarta. Not the cheapies, um, but reasonable for airfare and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, 1099 Taxes of 426, so that's the cheapest I'm seeing in April for a four-star beachfront all-inclusive with air. Next, I think this is a great deal for a nine-night Hawaii cruise. This sails actually through the Hawaiian Islands, so it starts in Honolulu, goes through the Hawaiian Islands, then crosses the Pacific and ends in Vancouver. So you walk off the ship, so you only need a one-way airfare added onto this. This is May the second, the nine-night cruise again, Honolulu to Vancouver. 899 taxes of 186 and do we have time for the last one? Sure, if we do it quickly. Okay, it's a uh, it's Portugal. So it's split between a Lisbon stay and the Algarve region. It's April the 9th through until October the 29th and it's air, four nights hotel in Lisbon, four nights in the Algarve, train between the two, two tours, breakfast daily, wine tasting and transfers all in 1599 taxes of 772. All right, Uh, some great
0: deals as people look to escape. Claire, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds great. Thanks, Jill. Well, some research that has come out of the B.C. Children's Hospital Research Institute is shining a light on severe allergies. And this is something that started with one patient and then became an international research study. Dr. Stuart Turvey is joining us now, investigator at the B.C. Children's Hospital Research Institute, also a pediatric immunologist. Dr. Turvey, thank you so much for being with us.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: Uh, it's, uh, it's such an interesting read, and I'll kind of get you to go back to the beginning if you can. And this all started with uh, somebody known as Patient 10.
3: I'm a pediatrician. I work at BC Children's Hospital. And through our research program, we've been able to solve some mystery cases over the years, solve some patients that didn't have answers. And so this story started for us maybe more than five years ago when a very senior clinician said, there's this patient that I saw for years who must have one of these diseases that you're studying. And so we reached out to the patient, we were able to enroll them in the research program, and they were the first person that we found with this new genetic change that's causing severe allergic disease.
0: And when we're talking about severe allergic disease, can you talk a little bit about, about how severe it is? We're not talking about getting uh, kind of stuffed up or sneezes in springtime because there's pollen. We're talking about uh, allergies that uh, could require surgeries uh, but and that have very, very, uh, very harsh um, uh, side effects.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. So at least 10% of Canadians have have some form of allergies. But what we're talking about here are the most severe. So so these patients who are born with a genetic change have trouble within the first few weeks of life. They develop widespread, really difficult to manage eczema or we call that atopic dermatitis. They have food allergies and very restricted diets. They, they um, Because of this, they don't grow as tall or as large as, as their peers. So these are patients who have really the most severe allergic disease that, that we would see in a hospital like BC Children's Hospital.
0: And can you talk a bit about how this became an international study? And I understand that you reached out and tried to look, like you mentioned, you were looking for perhaps others that had severe allergies. And what kind of a response did you get to that?
3: Yeah, this is the maybe the best part of the, the study was the remarkable global collaboration that grew from this so exactly what started with the one patient at BC Children's Hospital uh, we reached out through various mechanisms emails calling post posting uh, and very quickly we identified 16 patients from three continents so so really spanning the globe who all had um, this same problem and It's really that weight of evidence which with these different patients from from different countries and different ethnicities all have the same thing that really tells you that this genetic change is the the cause and is a new uh, form of human disease.
0: And when you reached out and when you started seeing other patients or seeing that there were people in in other countries and other parts of the world and other uh, immunologists and pediatricians that were working on this, how was that then, uh, continuing the study and looking at the the similarities and trying to figure out what was happening?
3: Uh, It was hugely gratifying in that something that started here is something Somewhat small, a single, a single patient in BC, BC Children's Hospital could really change the world at some level and change the way we understand um, these diseases. And one of the things that defines, I think, the global community of, of immunologists is the fact that we, we have a history of working together nicely like this. And, and this is just another example of that.
0: And so with all of these doctors and this research team now that's, that started working internationally in several different countries and identifying that there were people with the, the similar uh, severe aller- allergies, uh, w- when you were working on this or getting samples and looking at it, Back here in Vancouver, how did that kind of come about that you realized that that there was this gene that was to to that that was linked to this that there was this gene that was the common denominator?
3: Yeah, that's a, that's a nice question. So we're able to use new technology. So one of the things that's really transformed this field has been the advent of what they call next generation sequencing technology. And that means that we can actually sequence the genetic, all the genetic material. so all the genes that we have. Uh, A few years ago, we were stuck kind of doing single gene by gene, and so we missed things that were brand new that we didn't know. But this new technology allowed us to recognize that the change in this gene, it's called STAT6 is the name of the gene, was, was common to all of these patients who had all lived with, with lifelong terrible allergic
0: disease. Uh, I saw a quote uh, on the the BC Children's Hospital website uh, and uh, this quote attributed to you when talking about that gene saying it's like a runaway train with the accelerator jammed on, the immune system thinks everything is an allergy, which which I thought is such a a perfect way of trying to explain it to somebody who's not an immunologist. But can you talk a bit more about that? So then when you realized it was the STAT6 gene and you realized what it's doing, what do you do at that point?
3: Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, our immune system is all about balance. We, we don't want it to be too low because that predisposes us to infections and we don't want it to be too overactive and then it starts attacking our, or, or, and causing inflammation in our body. So what we saw was that this stat 6 was overactive. We call that a gain of function, genetic change. And It was important to us to make the diagnosis for these families, but much more important was actually to be able to offer them some treatment. And so in the lab, we were able to test different treatments and identify several that were really promising in turning down this runaway runaway train of the immune system.
0: And so what does that mean then for other people that may, or other children, people that may have the STAT6 gene and might also be dealing with these severe allergies?
3: So we're sharing this today with the the international community through through a peer-reviewed publication. And, And what that will mean is really two things. One is that clinicians who are treating similar patients around the world will be able to quickly identify stat six changes and knows that that's likely the cause for their patient. And you know, maybe more importantly, as we've described, uh, several treatments that seem to be safe and very effective at helping these patients. And remarkably, one, one young man went on one of these these treatments that we've identified and he was 18 at the time, and was, had been sick, and was very small. And after starting the treatment, he grew by 20 centimeters, and his life was changed by by this this treatment.
0: That's that's amazing. Where what, what was your reaction when you when you first learned that?
3: Well, this is why I get up in the morning. <laughs> to be honest, it, 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 you know, the idea that through the work we do at the hospital and the work through our research that we can change the lives of children, that's, that's, that's what gets me up in the morning. And to hear this young man's story was just remarkable.
0: Uh, I understand as well that uh, patient 10 uh, passed away before learning that, that patient 10 uh, was uh, the, the first person that, that was identified with this. I mean, really, this groundbreaking research that will change many, many lives. Uh, but, but where does it go from here, from this point?
3: So we have this amazing global network. And I think very quickly, other physicians around the world will find more and more of these patients and so uh, the way we get better is by sharing those, that, that experience of understanding these patients, understanding their health challenges so that we can avoid them now that we have a diagnosis and then identifying the, the most effective and safe therapies. So we'll be working together with our global colleagues to, um, to help us understand this disease even better in the future.
0: All right. Uh, Dr. Turvey, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with us about this today. Again, it's just fascinating research. So, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. do we need reforms when it comes to the bail system in this country and would that have an impact on repeat offenders those who cycle in and out of the justice system well the premier says yes the federal government does need to reform the bail system instead of simply talking about it but what might that look like well sarah lehman is joining us now lawyer with the sarah lehman law group thank you so much for taking some time and joining us today Thank you for having me on the program. What are your thoughts about the Premier saying it is time that the federal government take the lead in this, reform the bail system, specifically when we're talking about this small group of repeat and often violent offenders? Well,
4: I'm just pleased to see that our provincial government is now referring this to the appropriate level of government to do something. Because, of course, if we remember a few months back, The provincial government issued a policy directive to members of Crown Council in BC with respect to bail hearings. But really, that can't accomplish very much uh, given the structure that we operate under, which is controlled through federal legislation. So I'm happy to see that at least the discussion is now taking place at the appropriate level of government where we might actually see some changes happen.
0: And what kind of changes do you think would be, I guess, the most productive or, or would have be the most impactful?
4: Well, I think that many people these days are concerned about what they are describing as a catch and release bail system. Now, I don't completely agree with that type of terminology, um, but I think that uh, what we're going to see is some uh, measures being put in place in order to deal with repeat offenders, or more specifically, repeat violent offenders who are using weapons, perhaps. Um, Those types of uh, conditions uh, or different measures may be appropriate, considering some of the issues that we're dealing with as a society. But whether or not they will ultimately pass legal muster is another question, because, of course, we do have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which guarantees bail.
0: Right. And I think maybe that's where it gets a a little frustrating for people, especially when we hear stories about somebody that, say, uh, has been arrested more than 100 times or, or 80 times shoplifting and is out and gets arrested for breaking a window or for shoplifting. Again, you can see how people would look at that and think, well, why is that person continually being released? Absolutely. Uh, There is a very frustrating aspect to the
4: headlines and to uh, the stories that we see in the media with these kinds of cases in our communities. Uh, But what we have to remember is that bail is something that's guaranteed by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And it's something that needs to be applied uniformly uh, across the country, no matter which jurisdiction we're in. Um, Now, of course, the government, the federal government, can make changes to the legislation that governs bail. But those changes have to measure up to the Charter. And so uh, whatever changes they make are very likely to be challenged in court under the Charter. And whether or not they're ultimately uh, deemed to be constitutional is a question for another court.
0: Right. Do do you think there's at least a conversation to be had though about the system and and like you said the people under the charter people are are um bail is something that is a charter right people have rights to be given bail but is there something in many of these cases clearly nothing is changing and it's not working for anyone it's not working for people whose businesses are being broken into whose homes are being broken into or who are the victims of crime nor is it working for criminals. I can't imagine there are people who who one day dreamed of becoming repeat offenders that were in and out of the justice system in a constant circle. So is there a conversation to be had on maybe other alternatives or other ways of addressing this? Absolutely.
4: And that is something that I very strongly advocate. Um, I think it's easy for us to point the finger at the criminal justice system and specifically bail policies, uh, to say this is the root of the problem, when in fact it isn't. Uh, This is a very multifaceted issue that involves different levels of government and also society uh, that need to come together in order to find solutions uh, and to make sure that people don't end up becoming repeat or prolific offenders in our communities in the first place.
0: Do you think we're paying enough attention to, and this wouldn't be all of the cases, but it would certainly be some, the fact that, that, that the, the reasons behind that as well, if we're talking about somebody with a mental health, with an illness, we're talking about somebody with an addiction, if that's not being addressed, then, then how do we expect anything to turn out differently?
4: Exactly. And very often when we're talking about repeat offenders, they are people who are marginalized, who are experiencing mental illness or addictions issues. And so we need appropriate supports in place. Um, Sometimes those supports can be uh, at least um, gestured at in bail conditions, if a person is released on particular conditions to um, make sure that they're abiding uh, by um, a treatment plan, for example, um, or not possessing drugs or alcohol, for example. Um, but those are, again, afterthoughts. We have to think about how we can stop the cycle of addiction and also appropriately address mental illness in our communities before people get to the courtroom.
0: And I know there's often it's very controversial with the idea of involuntary treatment or or, and and bringing something like that in. But is there a place, do you think, with a choice of you have the choice if you go into treatment, then then maybe the sentence is less or it's given as an option as far as trying to encourage people that maybe didn't have access to treatment or who are open to it?
4: Yeah, and we have seen that type of approach being used in other Uh, international jurisdictions, for instance, Portugal um, does have this type of system, loosely speaking. Um, Here in Canada, we don't have uh, this type of system in place. It is something that many people have brought up and are talking about um, as a possibility um, again, whether or not that would pass charter muster is a different question, but I do think that it's important to explore these avenues for rehabilitation and intervention um, when it comes to people who are struggling.
0: Um, wasn't this something as well that we were supposed to see a difference in the system or different outcomes with the bringing in things such as community courts and drug courts?
4: Yes, and we do have a community court here in Vancouver um, it is more specialized to deal with people who are suffering from addiction issues or mental health issues, as well as repeat offenders. Um, but again, it's just one small piece of the puzzle. Um, there need to be appropriate supports in place, again, so that people aren't ending up being arrested by police and brought before a judge um, so that they can have their bail uh, um, imposed. Uh, this should be something that's dealt with at the beginning and, you know, as a lawyer, I don't have all the answers for how we should deal with it. But certainly I see in our courtrooms that there is a great need for this to be addressed.
0: Do you have much confidence that it will be addressed in that? I know, again, the premier is saying it's the time uh, time for the federal government to do something about this. But do you have much confidence that that there's an appetite to make some actual changes that would make a difference?
4: I think there is an appetite to do so we have seen the federal justice minister express a desire to make bail conditions more sticky using his words for repeat offenders Um, so you know i I think that that uh, idea is out there and i think that many uh, politicians and people in positions of power are considering how we could accomplish it um the question is just whether or not they ultimately will and then whether or not the changes that they do make uh, will stand up in court.
0: All right. Interesting ideas being put forward. Sarah, thank you so much for breaking it down for us. I appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you for having me.